Rachel Carson sits in a hospital room, waiting for her results. It's 1960, and this year has seemed more exhausting for her than ever. Her adopted son, Roger Christie, sits next to her holding her hand. Roger has been a godsend, helping her with her research on pesticides in rural Maryland, even though he's only five. She just submitted her book, Silent Spring, to her publisher and has been waiting to hear back. Rachel is nervous that they will find the book too political and bold, but in the research she has done, seeing the animal life killed by pesticides, she knows that now more than ever there is a need for people to know the danger of these drugs. The doctor opens the door and Rachel can tell that this isn't good news. He has an x-ray of her breast in his hand, and she can see the pale lump just sitting under his thumb. I'm sorry, he says. It's been spreading and we'll have to do a mastectomy. Rachel doesn't realize that she's been holding her breath and releases it slowly, understanding what will happen. Her fight has been ongoing and exhausting, but she must continue. She has to hold on, not only for Roger's sake, but for society's as well. She will never realize how important she is to become. Brains of the people are more interesting than the looks, I think. Electric power is everywhere present in a limited quantity. Jane, if you really want something and you work hard and you take advantage of opportunity and you never give up. You're listening to Human Angle, a podcast that focuses on the hidden lives of scientists, asking what makes them human. I'm your co-host, Kenna Castleberry. Here's my co-host, Kim Castleberry, who also happens to be my mom. I've asked her to join me for this special episode, so thank you, Kim, for coming on the show. And thank you, Kenna. And thank you to all our listeners. We've had over 600 plays on this podcast, and we couldn't have done it without you. You have a lot of choices in podcasts, and we're grateful that you've given ours a listen. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and other platforms. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, as it really does help us out. So today, we're looking into the life of Rachel Carson, a science writer who almost single-handedly started the environmental movement and stopped the use of DDT and other pesticides. Most of the research done for this episode was by my friend and fellow environmental advocate, Austin Hughes. So thank you so much, Austin. While I say that all these episodes are my favorite, this one is truly my favorite, as Rachel Carson is a personal hero of mine and someone I relate to. In this episode, we will be quoting from Rachel's books The Sea Around Us and Silent Spring, both of which are masterpieces and showcase Rachel Carson's brilliant writing. I highly recommend both for anyone wanting to know more about this amazing woman to make sure to read her books. So let's get started. Yeah. Rachel Carson was born May 27, 1907, in Springsdale, Pennsylvania. Springsdale was a rural town, and Rachel easily found time to explore her natural surroundings. She was always curious and loved learning, reading books ravenously. Someone else I know does that? (laughs) Her favorite author was Beatrix Potter, and in her teens, she enjoyed reading Herman Melville and Robert Louis Stevenson. Her father was an insurance salesman and taught her the value of hard work. She began writing at an early age, winning a prize for a story published in St. Nicholas Magazine at age 11 called A Battle in the Clouds about an aviator in the Royal Flying Corps. 
Her writing talents would continue throughout the rest of her life. Carson was successful in school, attending high school in Parnassus, Pennsylvania, and graduating with honors in 1925. She was the top student in her class of 44 students. She decided to go further with her studies, though during this time in the 1920s, few women were encouraged to go to college. She went to university in Pittsburgh and the Pennsylvania College for Women, now Chatham University, after being awarded a scholarship in Pittsburgh, majoring in English. In high school and in college, Rachel was a bit of a loner. She would later change her major to biology in 1928 due to influences from her biology professor, Mary Scott Skinner. Rachel continued to write for the student newspaper. So I can only relate to Carson here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you can. (laughs) Just because of my background, double majoring in biology and English. And this is one of the reasons I find her such a personal hero is that There are actually so many connections between biology and English that people don't think about. Many of the great writers were also biologists, such as Goethe, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, the writer of Faust and other poetry, is also, oddly enough, considered the father of modern plant morphology, because he, like, did all these classifications of plants. (laughs) But I think for Rachel Carson, anyway, the way I see it is that the switch between biology and English wasn't actually that difficult or a stretch for her. Because she knew, obviously, that she would be using her writing later in her career and found biology an outlet for her love of nature. So, and plus she loved reading and learning anyway, so that would easily assist her along the way for her studies. So much like someone else I know. Okay, thank you, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rachel switched in majors due to Professor Mary Scott Skinner. Skinner was a young professor, having graduated from Columbia Teachers College with an M.A. in zoology only three years before becoming Carson's professor. Carson looked up to Skinner and credited her with sharpening her interest in biology and helping her make decisions to switch majors. When Skinner transferred to John Hopkins to continue her doctoral work, Carson was very upset and tried to transfer along with her to stay under her tutelage. Carson didn't have the funding to follow Skinner, however, and ended up finishing her degree at Pennsylvania College for Women, graduating magnum cum laude. We all have teachers that inspire us in future life decisions. Can we think of some other scientists who have had that impact? So I guess like off this episode, probably, you know, just thinking about I just think about scientists and their family members because that's easiest to find for mentoring. So like Charles Darwin, his grandfather was studying evolution and also oddly enough wrote poetry. So another English biology, you know, combo. But the Braggs, William and Lawrence, and their work on x-ray crystallography, father and son, they both won the Nobel Prize together. And then, of course, you've got Curie, who we talked about in our Marie Curie episode, Mm -hmm. you know, Pierre Curie, who's Marie's husband, his brother Jacques also helped him find, you know, some stuff on electricity measurements and radioactivity. So, you know, they all have that mentor teacher person Mm -hmm. who they use. That curiosity and love for learning, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, Carson was able to follow Skinner after graduating from PCW in 1929 
and was accepted to John Hopkins in comparative zoology with a scholarship in order to fund her school. Skinner supported Carson for a summer fellowship to work at the Woods Hole Marine Biological Laboratory and endorsed her scholarship, seeing Carson's promise. In order to earn some money during her studies, she also worked as a TA for an undergrad biology course taught by Professor Grace Lippy. Lippy was the only female zoology professor at Hopkins at the time. Later in her studies at Hopkins, Carson was forced to begin taking classes only part-time as tuition had increased and her stipend could not cover the cost of attending full-time school. She interned with Raymond Pearls Institute for Biological Research in the School of Hygiene and Public Health as a lab assistant beginning in 1931, focusing on genetic research in Drosophila flies and rats in order to pay for her tuition. After the assistant position had ended, she began working for the Dental and Pharmacy School, University of Maryland in College Park, as the only female biology instructor. Overwhelmed with the combined stress of supporting herself financially through these positions and her research on reptile, cranial nerve, and embryos, which wasn't proving to be a fruitful line of work in research, by late 1931, Carson just needed to complete a thesis to finish her MA. She ended up asking Dr. Cowell, who had been Grace Lippy's advisor, to help her find a topic for her thesis. The result was the development of proniferos during the embryonic and early larva life of the catfish, which tracked the development of kidneys in catfish embryos. Boy, that sounds exciting. <laughs> so much so. She had now completed her master's program and cemented her interest in knowledge of genetics and embryo development that would lay the groundwork for her later discoveries. Carson began her research career at the Woodlands Hole U.S. Fisheries Research Laboratory under Grace Lippy in 1932 with the intention of getting her Ph.D. Money continued to be tight, earning a small income teaching part-time at the University of Maryland. However, because she was unable to pay her student debt from her undergraduate degree at PwC, she was eventually forced to drop out of her doctorate studies in 1934 and give up two plots of her family's land to Pennsylvania Women College as collateral for her unpaid debts. Ouch. Uh, yeah. Carson's monetary troubles continued to get worse, though, when her father died in 1935, leaving her to support the rest of her family. This was also, unfortunately, during the throes of the Great Depression, so job opportunities were scarce, compounded by the fact that she was a woman in a field dominated by men, marine biology. She tried taking numerous junior-level entry exams for the Civil Service Commission, but despite having the highest score on the aquatic wildlife exam, she still had no job prospects. The only source of income she had was from teaching summer school at John Hopkins, and without a PhD, she didn't have much of a chance for a full-time position in marine biology. Skinner, Carson's mentor, advised her to keep looking at the Bureau of Fisheries for positions. This thankfully led Carson to beginning to write again, starting with writing scripts of a public education radio show by the Bureau of Fisheries called, quote, Romance Under the Waters, end quote. 
the series of 52 seven-minute programs focused on aquatic life and was intended to generate public interest in fish biology and in the work of the Bureau, a task the several writers before Carson had not managed. She was able to get the radio more publicity with her writing. She also began writing full-length articles for the Baltimore Sun, quote, it'll be shade time soon and the Chesapeake Bay fishermen hope for better luck this season, end quote, <laughs> highlighted the impacts of pollution in the Chesapeake Bay, hinting at the beginning of her career as an environmental journalist and author. Carson signed all her articles R.L. Carson, hoping that, quote, readers would assume that the writer was male and thus take her science seriously, end quote. Isn't that sad? It's, yeah, it's so sad. Oh, but at least she was smart enough to put her initials in, mm-hmm. you know, kind of trick people into mm-hmm. reading her work. In 1936, Carson finally landed an entry-level job at the Bureau of Fisheries with an annual salary of $2,000. Austin, our researcher, did the math and with inflation, and this would come out to about $37,000 today, a year. For, for annual salary. Yeah, yeah. for an entry-level. So yeah, that's not, not bad. I think it depends on where you live, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So she was mostly writing brochures for the general population about fish conservation. She was the second woman to be hired by the Bureau of Fisheries. Carson's boss, Elmer Higgins. How would you like that name? Elmer Higgins. You have a great grandfather named Elmer. Oh, do I? Oops, I can't make fun of it then. No. (laughs) (laughs) So Carson's boss, Elmer Higgins, became her mentor encouraging her to continue developing her scientific writing, which today, of course, is known as science communication. Although we would also call it science journalism, probably. There's many different branches. It was able to combine her two loves of English and marine biology. Mm -hmm. In order to earn more money to support her family, which, of course, they had just now suffered the the loss of her sister due to pneumonia... Carson continued to write when she was not at work, submitting articles and essays to different publications. She was the sole breadwinner for her family, which now consisted of her mother and two nieces. Oh, so she was supporting nieces as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, of course, they're all women during the 1930s. Yeah, so. so probably they didn't have jobs either. Oh, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Eey, scary. One of Carson's writings, quote, World of Waters, end quote, which she had written while writing for the Baltimore Sun, was eventually published in Atlantic Monthly under the title Undersea. The 11-page essay was so impressive, Simon & Schuster Publishing House contacted Carson and suggested she turn the essay into a book. The result was, quote, Under the Sea Wind, end quote, in 1941 which described the environment of the Atlantic coast and ocean from the perspective of different local fauna. That's kind of cool. This would signify a major turning point in Carson's career. So I'm curious, because we have done a episode with John Steinbeck and Ed Ricketts talking about the West Coast and traveling around the Sea of Cortez and Monterey Bay, I'm curious if the two of them would have ever met what would have happened because she's all east coast marine biology and he's all west coast marine biology Mm -hmm. and i just feel like they would have gotten along really really well Mm -hmm. a lot of similarity yeah Mm -hmm. at the same time though steinbeck didn't exactly like women like he wasn't a complete misogynistic person but it's the 1930s carson was finally promoted to aquatic biologist at the newly formed u.s fish and wildlife service in 1943 authoring many bulletins about conservation and the environment to the general public. 
She was promoted to editor-in-chief of the Bureau of Fisheries, which then had turned into the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Division's publications, and through this position became aware of the devastating effects of DDT, which had started becoming widely used as a pesticide in 1945. Mm. Carson tried to leave her job in 1945, but few jobs were open to naturalists and science writers, and so she returned to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Division. DDT during this time, just for a little bit of background for our listeners, was a popularly used pesticide being nicknamed the, quote, insect bomb, end quote, after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. So really effective, but really detrimental to the environment. Well, so what do you do when they've manufactured all of this and now they're they're discovering, hey, we can use this (laughs) and make some money. Exactly. As opposed to like in war. Yeah. And not realizing what Mm -hmm. what the detrimental effects are on the environment and, and wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. So Carson tried to write on DDT usage earlier on, but her editors found the topic really unappealing because, again, of its popularity and, like you said, the usage and money making. So by 1948, Carson was working on material for her second book and made the decision to begin a transitioning to writing full-time as opposed to writing and being the editor-in-chief at the same time. So that year, she took on a literary agent, Marie Rodell, and they formed a close professional relationship that would last the rest of Carson's career. Despite having surgery to remove a cancerous breast tumor in 1950, in 1951, Carson published a sequel to Under the Sea Wind, quote, The Sea Around Us, with Oxford University Press. Carson sold the book to the press as a life history of the ocean. Unlike Carson's first book, quote, The Sea Around Us, end quote, was very successful. Nine chapters were serialized in The New Yorker beginning June 1951, and the book was published July 2nd of the same year. The last chapter, quote, The Birth of an Island, end quote, won the American Association for the Advancement of Science's George Westinghouse Science Writing Prize. Mm. Nice. Westinghouse. Yeah. The book also won the 1952 National Book Award for Nonfiction and the John Burroughs Medal, and resulted in Carson's being awarded two honorary doctorates. That's kind of cool. She didn't actually have to go to school to get her PhD. Good for her, right? (laughs) Absolutely. She deserves it. All that hard work finally finally paying off. Exactly. So she also licensed a documentary film based off the sea around us, quote, The Seas, end quote. Success led to the republication of Under the Sea Wind, which became a bestseller in itself. With success came financial security, and in 1952, Carson was able to give up her job in order to concentrate on writing full-time. She began diving deep into the effects of pesticide and helped by documentation on DDT research from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Division provided by Clarence Cotton. So I wanted to give a couple excerpts from The Sea of Us just to show you what Rachel's writing is like because she is a fabulous writer. So page 31, quote, And again, you may glimpse not only the abundance, but something of the fierce uncompromisingness of sea life when, as you look over the rail and down, down into a water of clear, deep green, suddenly there passes a silver shower of finger-long fishlets. The sun strikes a metallic gleam from their flanks as they streak by, diving deeper into the green depths with the desperate speed of the hunted. Mm. Just puts you right there, Mm. doesn't it? She definitely has some poetry in her writing, for sure. So, and another quote. 
Autumn comes with the sea with a fresh blaze of phosphorescence when every wave crest is aflame. Here and there the whole surface may glow with sheets of cold fire, while below schools of fish pour through the water like molten metal. End quote. Mm, I love that sheets of cold fire. I know. You don't think of fire being cold. Right? Oh. But how the light plays on the water and, and the fish and their reflection. Exactly. <clears throat> oh, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So when Carson moved to Maine in 1953, Dorothy Freeman, a nearby neighbor, wrote her a letter welcoming her to the area. This began a lifelong friendship that some speculate was romantic in nature, although there is very little evidence other than some excerpts from the 900-plus letters they wrote to each other. Carson's biographer, Linda J. Lear, writes that, quote, Carson sorely needed a devoted friend and kindred spirit who would listen to her without advising and accepting her wholly, the writer as well as the woman, end quote. Shortly before Carson's death, she and Freeman destroyed hundreds of letters. The surviving correspondence was published in 1995 as Always Rachel, the letters of Rachel Carson and Dorothy Freeman, 1952 to 1964 an intimate portrait of a remarkable friendship, which was edited by Freeman's granddaughter, Martha Freeman. Dorothy's granddaughter wrote at publication, quote, a few comments in early letters indicate that Rachel and Dorothy were initially cautious about the romantic tone and terminology of their correspondence. I believe this caution prompted their destruction of some letters within the first two years of their friendship, end quote. In the spring of 1964, Dorothy received half of Rachel's ashes in the mail sent to her by Robert Carson, Rachel's brother. In the summer of that year, Dorothy carried out Rachel's final wishes, scattering her ashes along the rocky shores of the Sheepscot Bay in Maine. So they obviously were close their whole life. Mm -hmm. Although I can't, I mean, I can kind of see Rachel Carson being a lesbian, but at the same time, I'm not entirely sure because the evidence isn't concrete. Well, and I think it's one of those, it, it really doesn't matter. Her work exactly. stands alone. Right. And and obviously supports the incredible researcher and passion of her heart, really. Yeah. For for life and and the respect for nature. True. Absolutely. And Freeman's a great support system for mm -hmm. that. Right. Whatever capacity she's in. It well and matter. and having to support her family at such a young age. Right. And trying to dig into her education and, and her passion for learning. Yeah. Yeah, that she, she needed someone to support her and encourage her. True. So in 1955, Carson published the third book of her series, quote, The Edge of the Sea, end quote, about life and coastal eco ecosystems on the East Coast. By this time, Carson's reputation for clear and poetic prose was well established. The Edge of the Sea received highly favorable reviews, if not quite as enthusiastic as for the sea around us. Carson wanted to write next on evolution, but eventually moved on to conservation. She also made plans to buy and preserve from the development area in Maine she and Freeman called the Lost Woods. Carson moved back to Silver Springs, Maryland in 1957 with when one of the nieces she had cared for since the 1940s had died at age 31, mm. leaving behind her five-year-old son, Roger Christie. Ouch. Ugh. Carson adopted the now-orphaned Roger Christie, not having any children of her own. By late 1957, Carson was closely following federal proposals for widespread pesticide spraying. 
the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, plan to eradicate fire ants and other spraying programs involving chlorinated hydrocarbons. Just for listeners, these chemicals can easily accumulate into toxic doses as they move up in an environmental food chain. So they get really, really toxic if you eat, like let's say that they go into the grass and the the grass is eaten by a cow and then you eat the cow, you get Mm -hmm. double the dose in a sense because you get one from the grass and one from the cow. Mm -hmm. So it gets really dangerous. So that same year, Carson started her research into the DDT spraying program to eradicate gypsy moths. The Audubon Naturalist Society recruited Carson to show the harmful effects of the program. Two years into the research, as evidence began to mount, the USDA's Agricultural Research Service put out a film called Fire Ant on Trial, which Carson described as propaganda to allow the continued use of harmful pesticides and dismiss their harmful effects. Carson began the four-year project of what would become Silent Spring by gathering examples of environmental damage attributed to DDT. She also attempted to enlist others to join her cause, such as the essayist E.B. White and a number of journalists and scientists. By 1958, Carson had arranged a book deal with plans to co-write with Newsweek science journalist Edwin Diamond. However, when the New Yorker commissioned a long and well-paid article on the topic from Carson, she began considering writing more simply the introduction and conclusion as planned, and it became a solo project. Diamond would later write one of the harshest critiques of Silent Spring after Carson published it. In 1960, Carson had amassed enough evidence to publish Silent Spring. As she was nearing full recovery in March, just as she was completing drafts of the two cancer chapters of her book, she discovered cysts in her left breasts, one of which necessitated a mastectomy. Though her doctor described the procedure as precautionary and recommended no further treatment, by December, Carson discovered that the tumor was malignant and that the the cancer had metastasized. During this time, while writing the book, Carson had to hide her illness so that the pesticide companies couldn't use it against her. She worried that if the companies knew, it would give them additional ammunition to make her book look untrustworthy and biased. By 1961, Carson finally agreed to the suggestion of her literary agent, Marie Rodell. Silent Spring would be a metaphorical title for the entire book, suggesting a bleak future for the whole natural world. Mm rather than a literal chapter title about the absence of birdsong. As biographer Linda Lear writes, quote, Carson questioned the moral right of the government to leave its citizens unprotected from substances they could neither physically avoid nor publicly question. Such callous arrogance could only end in the destruction of the living world. Carson herself has said, can anyone believe it is possible to lay down such a barrage of poisons on the surface of the earth without making it fit for all life? They should not be called insecticides, but biocides. Mm, Interesting. So Silent Spring was finally published in 1962. The book described the harmful effects of pesticides on the environment and is widely credited with helping launch the environmental movement. As Linda Lear writes, quote, Carson was an outsider who had never been part of the scientific establishment, first because she was a woman, but also because her chosen field, biology, was held in low esteem in the nuclear age. She deliberately wrote for the public rather than for a narrow scientific audience. By the time Silent Spring was published, Carson's outsider status had become a distinct advantage. As a science establishment would discover, it was impossible to dismiss her. The chemical industry, mainly DuPont and Velsicle Chemical Corporation, fought to suppress the findings Carson had outlined, even threatening legal action against the publishing company. 
This ended up backfiring as it drew much more attention to the issue and brought pesticides into the public sphere. Lear notes that, quote, it was clear to the industry that Rachel Carson was a hysterical woman whose alarming view of the future could be ignored or, if necessary, suppressed. She was a bird and bunny lover, a woman who kept cats and therefore was clearly suspect, end quote. Wow. <laughs> wow. So I'm curious if they would say the same thing if it was a man. I know. That was, I was presenting that, that. Yeah. You know. Like, um, like, would you call a man who kept cats a crazy cat man? Well, and for them to say a hysterical woman. Exactly. I yeah. know. Oh, man. Yeah. Makes me so upset. The following year in 1963 included many awards and speaking opportunities for Rachel Carson, including testifying before JFK's Science Advisory Committee, the Audubon Medal, the Coulomb Geographical Medal, and the induction into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. So I wanted to show two passages from Silent Spring because most people haven't read the book mm-hmm. and it is a really good book to read. And I just, again, wanted to showcase Rachel Carson's writing because she is fabulous. So the first quote is from page 86. The citizen who wishes to make a fair judgment of the question of wildlife loss is today confronted with a dilemma. On one hand, conservationists and many wildlife biologists assert that the losses have been severe and in some cases even catastrophic. On the other hand, the control agencies tend to deny flatly and categorically that such losses have occurred, or that they are of any importance if they have. Which view are we to accept? The best way to form our own judgment is to look at some of the major control programs and learn, from observers familiar with the ways of wildlife and unbiased in favor of chemicals, just what has happened in the wake of a rain of poison falling from the skies into the world of wildlife." End mm. quote. And a second quote, over increasingly large areas of the United States, spring now comes unheralded by the return of birds, and the early mornings are strangely silent, where once they were filled with the beauty of birdsong. The sudden silencing of the songs of birds, this obliteration of the color and beauty and interest they tend or they lend to our world, have come swiftly, insidiously, and unnoticed by those whose communities are as yet unaffected, end quote. So yeah, just amazing writing. Yeah. So although there were many more speaking opportunities, Carson's health was failing, and she became less and less able to fulfill them. The continuing radiation treatment from her recent breast cancer had left her anemic and immunocompromised, leading to pneumonia. In 1964, it was discovered that the cancer had moved to her liver, a terminal diagnosis. She died at home in Silver Springs, Maryland later that year, just 18 months after publishing Silent Spring. Lear notes that, quote, Rachel Carson knew before she died that her work had made a difference. She was honored by medals and awards and posthumously received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1981. It was not until six years after Carson's death that concerned Americans celebrated the first Earth Day and that Congress passed the National Environmental Policy Act establishing the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, as a buffer against our own handiwork, end quote. So Rachel Carson is in every way a hero and was selfless to the very end of her life. And one of the reasons we created this podcast or this episode on her is that we can't really let her name be unknown and we must continue the work that she started. Absolutely. So that's it for this episode. Please let us know what you think and tune in next time as we talk about Sir Bernard Spilsbury and his work in forensic science. 